Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Stories for the Road and the story of Captain John Smith that you didn't get in history class. Part 7 starts with accidents and incidents, and it gets worse as things get tougher for Captain Smith. To keep you up to date, it is now January of 1609. Powhatan and his brother Opie Kenkanoff have gotten tired of Smith standing in their way of getting weapons, gunpowder, swords, and the like that Newport had promised to give them. Captain Newport really dirtied up the pond with all the goodies he gave and promised to the Indians, this stupid generosity leading to the Indians losing all respect for the colonists. At Newport's, i.e. King James' orders, there were ten men working on a new palatial wooden home for Powhatan, led by two Dutchmen who had crossed over to Powhatan's side and had accomplices in the group of colonists who were opposed to Smith. The Dutchmen were staying busy arming Powhatan's people with weapons that he was stealing from the fort, and he had turncoats there, ready and willing to help. Those turncoats were largely gentlemen who didn't want to work, but liked the food and relaxation, until Smith issued his Work or Starve proclamation, which really got them mad enough to kill. Who did he think he was? No shallow, self-centered hotshot from an unprivileged background was going to be giving them orders. Time to give weapons to Powhatan and stir things up. Powhatan would be their insurance policy that this dumb ox would go away. And Part 7 begins with the loss of a few good men to a freak storm and Powhatan's efforts to raise an army to get rid of Smith. And now, Part 7. Meantime, two of the Dutchmen, as they're called, returned to Jamestown and told Captain Wynne, who was in command of the fort, that they had come for some tools which they needed and a change of clothes. They procured new arms on the pretense that Captain Smith, having need of their arms, had taken them. They also plotted with some men in the fort and secured various arms, ammunition, and tools which they conveyed to Indians outside the fort who carried them away. By eight of these confederates within Jamestown, to whom it was represented that they would be favorites of Powhatan and safe from the miseries of the others, there was a constant leakage of weapons for months. Meanwhile, the Englishmen who had been left with Powhatan were in constant fear of their lives. While Captain Smith was still away, a sad accident happened at Jamestown, and as we recall, he's at Werewakomoko, dealing with Powhatan and Opikankanoff. Mr. Scribner, for some reason, desired to visit an island in the river where the colonists kept their hogs, and which to this day retains the name of Hog Island. The name in Smith's history is sometimes given a more poetical sound by calling it the Isle of Hogs. Mr. Scribner entered the skiff accompanied by Captain Waldo, Mr. Anthony Gosnold, and eight more. It was an extreme frozen time. There was a violent wind, and the boat was overloaded. She was upset in the tempest, and the Indians were the first to find the bodies. The loss was a great one to the little colony, and the Powhatan Indians were the more encouraged by it. No one could be found to go and tell the sad news to the president until Mr. Richard Whiffin undertook this dangerous mission. When he arrived at Werewakomoko, the English were not there, and he could see preparations for war on every side. 
Mr. Whiffin's life was in danger, but Pocahontas came to his assistance. She hid him while he was at Werewakomico. When he had gone, the Indians prepared to pursue him, but Pocahontas sent them in the direction opposite to the one in which he had gone. After three days' journey, and by the use of ample bribes among the savages, Mr. Whiffin reached the adventurers. Captain Smith made him swear to keep his sad news a secret for the present, fearing lest his men should become demoralized for the dangers through which they must yet pass. Powhatan seems to have had trouble to persuade his people into any skirmishing with the whites. In the words of the narrative that Smith provides, the Indians hated a fight with them almost as ill as hanging. Such fear had they of bad success. On the morning following the arrival of Mr. Whiffin, the English stopped at an Indian village. At sunrise, the fields were covered with Indians and their baskets of commodities. They would not trade unless Captain Smith would come ashore, and they would not on any account endure the sight of a gun. The captain complied with their request, but he managed to arrange some of his men in ambush so that he might be assured of a defense without affecting savage nerves with the sight of firearms. All went along well until the Indians had beset the captain and his companions with numbers. The Indians then drew their arrows, even now with trembling hands, and when the ambush was suddenly discovered, they fled, esteeming, in the words of the history, their heels for best advantage. During the night, Mr. Cranshaw and Mr. Ford were sent to Jamestown with the barge. This boat, passing down the river in the darkness, added to the Indians' fright, for they thought Captain Smith was sending for more men. The chief sent a string of pearls as a conciliatory present, and promised to freight the ship with food. For several days they flocked in from all parts of the country, bearing corn upon their naked backs. A young warrior named Wakutanao, a son of one of the principal chiefs, brought the English some food, which was poisoned. This would have cost the life of Captain Smith and several others had not the dish been overdosed with poison. The young Indian was suspected of a knowledge of this. Seeing him stand on the defensive, Captain Smith caused a good whipping to be administered to him, and then spurned him as though he thought him too mean for further punishment. When the English again reached Werewakomico, they found that Powhatan had deserted the place. He did not relish his proximity to the colony. They sailed with all speed for Jamestown now, well supplied with corn and deer suet. Those who had been left at the fort had lived upon what provision there was, which was spoiled by rain and eaten by rats and worms. So it could not have been a pleasant diet. The colonists now found that they had good food enough to last until the next corn harvest, thanks to Smith's efforts. Captain Smith appointed six hours a day to be spent at work and the remainder of the day in pastime and merry exercise. He made his unruly colonists a speech. Countrymen, said the captain, the long experience of our late miseries I hope is sufficient to persuade every one to a present correction of himself, and think not that either my pains nor the adventurer's purses will ever maintain you in idleness and sloth. I speak not this to you all, for diverse of you I know deserve both honor and reward better than is yet here to be had. But the greater part must be more industrious or starve. However, you have been heretofore tolerated by the authority of the council from that I have often commanded you. You see now that power resteth wholly in myself. 
you must obey this now for a law, that he will not work, shall not eat, except by sickness he is disabled. For the labors of thirty or forty honest and industrious men shall not be consumed to maintain a hundred and fifty idle loiterers. And though you presume the authority here is but a shadow, and that I dare not touch the lives of any but my own must answer it, the letter's patent shall each week be read to you, whose contents will tell you the contrary. I wish you therefore without contempt to seek to observe these orders set down, for there are now no more counselors to protect you or curb my endeavors. Therefore he that offendeth, let him assuredly expect his due punishment. The captain furthermore made a public record of every man's behavior, hoping thus both by encouragement and shame to better the conduct of the colonists. Meanwhile, there's a constant leakage in arms, ammunition, and tools by means of the Dutchman's confederates within Jamestown, who, though the loss was known, were not caught until it was too late. The Dutchman remained with Powhatan, instructing him in the use of English arms. Their rendezvous was at a glass house half a mile distant from Jamestown. One of the men came here one day disguised as a savage. Captain Smith, hearing of his arrival, went to the glass house with twenty men, hoping to capture him. He was already gone, however, and sending his men in pursuit, Smith undertook to return alone to Jamestown, armed only with a sword. On his way he met the chief of Paspahe, who immediately prepared to shoot the captain, who, however, sprang forward and grappled with him. The chief was very strong and stout, and he picked up the captain and carried him to the river. Into the river he jumped with his enemy and attempted to drown him. They struggled together in the water until Smith managed to get a good grip of the chief's throat. He drew his sword and would have cut off his head, but the Indian begged piteously for his life, and Smith led him prisoner to Jamestown, where he had him put into chains. The Dutchman was also brought in prisoner, but he told Captain Wynne a story about how Powhatan had detained him by force, that he had escaped at the hazard of his life, and meant to have returned immediately to Jamestown, but was only walking in the woods in search of walnuts. He was inadvertently allowed to go with this excuse, though the imprisoned chief confessed to a very different story. Captain Smith told him that if he could procure the return of the Dutchman, he would save his life. The poor Indian did his best to accomplish this, sending messengers daily to Powhatan. The answer came back that Powhatan did not detain the Dutchman, but that they would remain, and he could not send them fifty miles on men's backs. Every day the wives, children, and people of the prisoner would come to Jamestown to visit him, bringing with them presents to appease the anger of the English. His liberty was promised him, but finding his guard negligent one day, he made sure of it. The runaway chief was pursued, and two Indians named Kemps and Tussor were captured in pursuit. These Indians were said to be the two most exact villains in all the country. With these for guides, Smith sent Captain Wynne to recapture the escaped chief, in which, however, Wynne failed, though he burnt the chief's house. Captain Smith now set out for himself and attacked the Paspahe Indians, who, recognizing him, threw down their arms and sent their orator, a young man named O'Kanin, to him. Captain Smith, said O'Kanin, my master is here present in the company, thinking it Captain Wynne and not you. Of him he intended to be revenged, having never offended him. 
"'If he hath offended you in escaping your imprisonment, "'the fishes swim, the fowls fly, "'and the very beasts strive to escape the snare and live. "'Then blame him not, being a man. "'He would entreat you remember, you being a prisoner, "'what pains he took to save your life. "'If since he has injured you, he was compelled to do it, "'but howsoever you have revenged it with our too great loss, "'we perceive and well know you intend to destroy us that are here "'to entreat and desire your friendship, "'and to enjoy our houses and plant our fields, "'of whose fruit you shall participate. "'Otherwise you will have the worse by our absence, "'for we can plant anywhere, though with more labor, "'and we know you cannot live if you want our harvest, "'and that relief we bring you. "'If you promise us peace, we will believe you. "'If you proceed to revenge, we will abandon the country.' Peace was accordingly made. When Captain Smith returned to Jamestown, he found that the Chickahominy Indians had been discovered in various thefts. Among other things, a pistol had been stolen. The thief had escaped, but two young Indian brothers, who were known to be his confederates, were captured. One of the brothers was imprisoned, and the other was told to go and get the pistol, and if he did not return with it in twelve hours, his brother would be hung. The savage sped away on his errand. Meantime, Captain Smith took pity on the poor naked Indian in his cold dungeon and sent him food and charcoal for a fire. About midnight, the brother returned with a stolen pistol. On entering the dungeon, it was found that the prisoner had been smothered with the carbonic acid gas generated by the charcoal fire and had fallen senseless among the coals, where he was sadly burnt. The poor brother was heartbroken. He lamented his death with such bitterness that the bystanders were touched. Captain Smith, though he had little hope that the Indian could be brought to, quieted the brother with the assurance that if they would steal no more, he would make him alive again. The Englishman went to work with brandy and vinegar, and the Indian presently came to his senses. His brother, however, was still more distressed to see him quite out of his mind from the effects of the smothering and fright, to say nothing of the brandy. Captain Smith promised to cure him if they would both behave well thereafter. He had the man put by a fire to sleep. He awoke in the morning in his right mind. His wounds were dressed, and the brothers were sent away well pleased with presents of copper. The story was told among the Indians as a miracle, and they believed that Captain Smith could bring back a man who had been dead. Another Indian got possession of a great bag of gunpowder and the back piece of a suit of armor. With a great display of superior knowledge, he proceeded to dry the gunpowder over the fire in the piece of armor, as he had seen English soldiers do. The Indians crowded around him, peeping over his shoulder, to see this wonderful process. The result was that the powder blew up, killing the Indian and several others, and scorching all so badly that they had no desire to meddle with powder again. These and many other such pretty accidents as the writers wittily called them, gave the superstitious minds of Powhatan and his people a good fright. The Indians came in from all parts, desiring peace, bringing presents, and returning many stolen things of which the English had had no suspicion. Any of their people caught in theft after this were sent by Powhatan back to Jamestown for punishment, and a savage dared not wrong an Englishman of so much as a pin. 
This peaceful state of affairs enabled the colonists to follow their businesses quietly and successfully. Tar, pitch, and soap ashes were manufactured. A specimen of glass was made. A well of sweet water, a thing much needed heretofore, was dug within the fort. Some twenty cottages were built. The church was covered, and fishing nets were prepared. A blockhouse was built on the neck of the peninsula and garrisoned as a place for trade with the savages, and to prevent the constant thieving and disturbances. As spring of 1609 came, the land was tilled and corn planted. The colonists had started with some three hogs and a few chickens. They now had sixty and odd pigs, and it was stated as a great wonder that five hundred chicklings had brought themselves up without feeding. Upon Hog Island, which served as a natural pig pen, another blockhouse was built as a point from which notice of shipping might be given. The colonists cut down trees and made clapboards and wainscoting for exercise. They began the building of a fort as a place of retreat in case of extremity. This place was said to be situated near the river, upon a high hill. There stands in Virginia a building called the Old Stone House, situated 22 miles from Jamestown, upon a high, steep bluff overlooking Ware Creek, a tributary of York River, which is in all probability the place of retreat which the colonists built. It is constructed of sandstone from the creek's bank and without mortar. It's a very small structure, being eight and a half feet wide by fifteen in length, and has a basement and one story. The walls and chimney are standing. There's a doorway six feet in width, and it is everywhere pierced with loopholes. This little fort is in a solitary, romantic spot reached only along a narrow ridge, deep in a gloomy woods full of ivy-grown ravines. Tradition has connected this building with legends of Captain Smith, Pocahontas, and the hidden treasures of the pirate Blackbeard. The fortress was never finished. In examining the store of corn one day, it was found to be almost consumed with the rats whose ancestors had been left by the ships and who had multiplied enormously, while what they had spared was rotten. The colonists were driven to their wits' ends. The Indians, who laid by no store and were always improvident, had now no corn left. The colonists must either make out to live upon the wild fruits of the country or starve. All other work was abandoned in the search after food. The two Indians, Kemps and Tussor, who were considered such villains, had been retained as prisoners among the English. They had been used to teach the colonists how to plant Indian corn. Having already too many mouths to feed, the English set these Indians at liberty. They had grown so fond of the colonists, however, that they were quite unwilling to go. The natives showed the utmost friendliness in this extremity, bringing in quantities of game and venison. Every exertion was made to supply food. At one time, sixty or eighty men were sent down the river with Ensign Saxon to live upon oysters, twenty men to point comfort with Lieutenant Percy to fish, and twenty more up the river. But this party could find nothing but acorns to live upon. As usual, there were some thirty or forty who provided food for the colony by their own industry, while the others had to be forced to save themselves from starvation. There were then, as now, quantities of sturgeon to be had in the James River. Some of the more industrious colonists dried the meat of this fish and pounded it, mixing it with herbs, so as to make a sort of a bread out of it, 
after the manner of Indians, while others would gather roots for food. The idlers wished Captain Smith to sell tools, arms, even the very ordnance and houses of Jamestown, to the savages, for food. They were very desirous of deserting the country, heading back for England. The government there was now entirely in Captain Smith's own hands, he being both counsel and counselors. The last member of the council, Captain Wynne, had died before the times of plenty were over. Although the council had often hampered him in his management of treacherous Indians abroad and ruling Englishmen at home, he had a most affectionate feeling for all its later members. Captain Smith at last made the following speech to the colonists. Fellow soldiers, I did little think any so false to report, or so many be so simple to be persuaded, that I either intended to starve you, or that Powhatan at this present time hath corn for himself, much less for you, or that I would not have it if I knew where it were to be had. Neither did I think any so malicious as now I see a great many. I dream no longer of this vain hope of help from Powhatan, nor that I will longer forbear to force you from your idleness and punish you if you rail. But if I find any more runners for Newfoundland with the pinnace, let him assuredly look to arrive at the gallows. You cannot deny, but that by the hazard of my life many a time I have saved yours, when, might your own wills have prevailed, you would have starved, and will do still, whether I will or no. But I protest by that God that made me, since necessity hath not power to force you to gather for yourselves those fruits of the earth doth yield. You shall not only gather for yourselves, but those that are sick. And this savage trash you so scornfully repine at, being put in your mouths, your stomachs can digest. If you would have better, you should have brought it, and therefore I will take a course you shall provide what is to be had. The sick shall not starve, but equally share all of our labors, and he that gathered not every day as much as I do, the next day shall be set beyond the river and be banished from the fort, till he amend his conditions or starve. Every effort was made to carry the colonists through this time of want. For this purpose, some of their number were boarded, so to speak, among the Indians, where they were treated with the utmost kindness. So comfortable were they that several of the colony ran away. They sought out the old prisoners, Kemps and Tussor, thinking they would be sure of friendly treatment and an idle life with them. These Indians, however, had no desire to entertain truants. Kemps proceeded to make sport of them for the benefit of the Indians. He dealt with them as the white men had dealt with him when a prisoner. He made fun for the Indians by feeding the runaway Englishmen with this law. Who would not work, must not eat. The indolent truants were nearly starved and constantly threatened with beatings. Nor would this jocular Indian allow them to escape. He at last returned them as prisoners to the authorities at Jamestown. Mr. Sicklemore returned about this time from Chowanoke, with accounts of where the silk grass might be found, having discovered nothing of Sir Walter Raleigh's lost colony. Nathaniel Powell and Anus Toddkill were also sent in search of the lost colony among the Manguag Indians, where they could learn nothing but that they were all dead. The chief of these Indians is honored in the old narrative with numerous objectives, being an honest, proper, good, promise-keeping king. Though he adhered to the faith of his people, he admitted that the God of the English 
as much exceeded his as our guns did his bow and arrows. He would sometimes send presents to Captain Smith, requesting him to pray to his God for rain, or his corn would perish, for his gods were angry. One day a vessel arrived in command of Captain Samuel Argall, a relative of Sir Thomas Smith, the treasurer of the London Company. Captain Argall had come with a load of wine and provisions to trade with the colonists, contrary to the company's regulations. The necessities of the colonists were so pressing that they seized upon Argall's provisions. Captain Argall brought with him news of a change in the London Company, of preparations for a large supply of colonists, and of the appointment of Lord Delaware to the office of Governor-General to the colony. A new patent had been granted by King James to the company, which now included many noblemen whose influence and wealth had enriched it to such an extent that the third supply sent to Virginia was undertaken on a large scale. Like all commercial bodies, the company was selfish. It lacked farsightedness and looked only for immediate enrichment at the hands of an infant colony, caring little whether the colony succeeded in maintaining a foothold or not, if only the projectors might receive some commercial benefit from these men who were sent into the wilderness totally unqualified for the struggle of frontier life. Hopes were still held out from time to time of the discovery of mines of precious metal or the attainment of sudden riches after the manner of the Spanish. To be sure, gold had not been found lying in profusion on the very surface of the earth, and people now saw that it was unreasonable to expect that it should be. Still, it was argued that gold certainly must be there. Everything was done in England to encourage the public faith in Virginia's resources. Among other things, Hakelet published a translation from the Portuguese entitled, Virginia Richly Valued by the Description of Florida, Her Next to Neighbor. In this book, the Spaniards' testimony as to the existence of mines of gold and other metals in Florida was taken to prove that Virginia must also contain precious metal. While the aim of the company at home was commercial wealth, Captain Smith's mind was set upon such commonplace objects as corn and deer suet for hungry mouths, looking only to the firm planting of New England and Virginia. Captain Smith's letter, plain smoking almost to rudeness, was not calculated to conciliate the London Company. He received letters by Captain Argall rebuking him for his treatment of the savages, and it seemed to be the company's desire to take the government from his hands as quickly as possible. Nine vessels were fitted out for a voyage to Virginia. The Sea Adventure, the Diamond, the Falcon, the Blessing, the Unity, the Lion, the Swallow, and two smaller boats. Five hundred colonists sailed in these vessels, some of whom were veteran soldiers, though many were dissolute gentlemen, packed thither by their friends to escape ill destinies. Eight horses were also sent over in this fleet. Sir Thomas Gates was appointed Lieutenant General, Sir George Summers, Admiral of Virginia, and Captain Newport, Vice Admiral. Gates and Summers were to govern the colony in the place of Lord Delaware, and each of these three gentlemen was furnished with a commission to take the government out of Captain Smith's hands. Immediately, on his arrival. But it chanced that they all sailed in the same vessel, the Sea Adventure. Among the captains of this fleet were the old colonist Martin 
and the evil spirits Radcliffe and Archer. The ships sailed from Plymouth on the first day of June, 1609. They had a pleasant voyage until the 23rd of July, when they were caught in a hurricane. The vessels were dispersed, and one of the smaller boats lost. In the early part of August, the Blessing sailed up the James River. She was soon followed by the Falcon, the Unity, and the Lion. Shortly after, the Diamond appeared with her mainmast gone, followed in two or three days by the Swallow, in a similar state. But no sea adventurer appeared. No one had the authority to take the government out of Captain Smith's hands, and yet it was not likely that the new colonists, under a fresh charter, which did not look to the rights of the older settlers, and led by Radcliffe, Martin, and Archer, who certainly had no more friendly feeling for Captain Smith than he had for them, would be likely to submit to his rule. All was confusion. The colony was divided into factions. Today the old commission must rule, tomorrow the new, the next day neither. It is stated that Captain Smith would willingly have returned to England, but there seemed now no hope that the new rulers would arrive, and the colony was in a deplorable condition with no lawful rulers. The old commission withdrawn, none to take its place, and the majority of the colonists newly arrived, headstrong, ambitious, and entirely inexperienced, more determined upon finding gold than anything else. Captain Smith resumed the government. He planned a new settlement to be made under Mr. West at the falls in the James River, and another under Captain Martin at Nansemond, which is out near Suffolk. His year had about expired, however. He made Captain Martin president in his place, but this gentleman, knowing his own inefficiency, resigned within three hours in favor of Captain Smith, and proceeded to Nansemond. Here he had ill success getting into a skirmish with the Indians, in which some of his men were killed and his provisions stolen. Mr. West's company was planted in an unhealthy and inconvenient spot. Captain Smith purchased from Powhatan the site of his hamlet of Powhatan for the use of Mr. West's company. These men, however, being mostly of the new supply, refused to occupy this new situation. The strong-willed captain went up the river with five men and endeavored to force them to obey. They resisted, and Captain Smith was forced to protect himself by a retreat to his boat. He spent nine days attempting to bring the unruly company into submission and trying to disabuse them of their ideas of gold mines and a South Sea beyond the falls. He at last set sail for Jamestown. Immediately the Indians, who did not relish their proximity and the harsh treatment they had received at their hands, made an attack upon the settlement. Meantime, Captain Smith's boat had run aground, and the settlers, frightened by the hostile Indians, came to him and gave in their submission. Captain Smith imprisoned some of the ringleaders of the mutiny, and settled the others at Powhatan, which was fortified in Indian manner with boughs of trees, possessed many dry cabins, was in a commanding situation, and surrounded by pleasant cornfields. The delighted colonists, considering it the pleasantest place in Virginia, gave this village the name of Nonsuch. But when West, who had been to Jamestown, returned, he having bestowed cost to begin a town in another place, misliked it, and the settlement was removed to its former situation. Returning down the river to Jamestown, an accident happened to Smith, 
While lying asleep in his boat, his powder bag exploded and wounded him severely. The captain instantly leapt into the water to quench the fire, and was only rescued with difficulty from drowning. It has been put forth by some researchers that Smith was in the company of a young man named Henry Spillman, who had been basically traded to the Indians as an interpreter for another young Indian boy who acted as interpreter at Jamestown. With the mutinous factions that were lined up against Smith, the idea is that Spellman waited for his chance while Smith was sleeping, the boat was slowly drifting downriver, and it was Spellman who lit that gunpowder that burned Smith's leg. It makes a lot of sense because Spellman wanted no part of being an interpreter for the Indians and basically had to live with them for a year to learn their language and customs. He wanted out, and with Smith gone, that would have been his ticket. It's very, very possible that someone could have put him up to it. The story continues. It is stated in Smith's history that Captain Smith's return to England soon after was to obtain surgical aid, while Captain Radcliffe wrote in a letter at that time that Smith was sent home to answer some misdemeanors. This may also have been the case, since the colony was involved in constant squabbles upon which it is impossible to pass judgment. But keep in mind, Captains Ratcliffe and Archer were imprisoned by Smith for insubordination. Their trial was about to take place at the time of Smith's accident, and they in their turn would probably send him to England if they could get the power. However, that may be, Captain Smith left Virginia in the fall of 1809, never to return. He had been in the colony a little over two years. At the time of his departure, he says that there were about 490 persons in the colony. Whatever were his faults, he had saved the colony from the Indians and from starvation, and had carried it through some of its worst perils. More than any other man, he deserves the title of founder of Virginia. Of all its evil accidents, the colony suffered none that so much threatened its existence as Smith's departure. And in our last chapter, chapter 8, we'll describe the starving time and how bad it got without Smith. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. It's been quite a journey as we hear the true story of Captain Smith and Jamestown. Apple listeners, please do send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We would appreciate it very much if you'd enjoy this series. And also you can email me with ideas for the next one. It's 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear your ideas. Thank you, and we'll be back in one week.